This is Unorthodox, the leading Jewish podcast. I am one of your hosts, Stephanie Butnick, and today we have something a bit different for you. This episode comes out on Tisha B'Av, the commemoration of the destruction of both temples in Jerusalem. Observant Jews typically fast on this day. It's a long summer fast. And because the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av falls during summer months, it makes for one very strange and somber day at Jewish summer camps. Because the destruction of the ancient temples can be a bit, well, distant, the Ninth of Av has become, in some ways, a kind of catch-all day for Jewish mourning, a commemoration of all the historic suffering we faced as a people. Which means it's as good a time as any to talk about the Holocaust. And if you listen to this show regularly, you know I do not miss an opportunity to talk about the Holocaust. My father's parents met in the displaced persons camp at Bergen-Belsen after surviving several labor and concentration camps. You'll hear a bit more about those displaced person camps later on in this episode. My paternal grandparents, Milton and Dora, died when I was really, really little. And at this point, I can't tell if my gauzy memories of them are real or based on photographs I've spent my life looking at. During the pandemic, I've been interviewing my maternal grandparents, Grandma Seal and Grandpa Al, asking them all about their lives as kids during the Great Depression, about meeting at a singles weekend in Connecticut and raising a family, my mother and her two sisters. I feel so lucky to get the chance to turn the microphone on them and find out what they were like before I met them. I've never been able to ask those same questions of my dad's parents. And while I've heard stories over the years, theirs is a story that in many ways I've had to piece together myself. That's not uncommon for other grandchildren or even children of Holocaust survivors. Our three guests today have all done the detective work to figure out what happened in their family during the Holocaust, and they're now sharing these stories in books and, in one case, a podcast. Our first guest today is Esther Safran Fower, whose memoir, I Want You to Know We're Still Here, is about her journey to uncover her parents' Holocaust story, about the tragedies that befell them in Europe and followed them even after their immigration to America. Next, I spoke with Andrew Evans, who was raised in the Church of England, but was inspired by Brexit to dig into his unspoken family history and find out the true story of his Holocaust surviving grandfather. What he uncovered became a podcast called Unbordered. Finally, you'll hear my conversation with Daphne Geismar, whose day job is to design beautiful books about art and who turned her craft on her own family story of survival in Nazi-occupied Netherlands. The result is her book, Invisible Years. I hope you'll enjoy hearing these incredible stories as much as I enjoyed reporting them. Esther Safran Foer is the mother of three very literary children, Jonathan Safran Foer, Joshua Foer, and Franklin Foer. Her memoir, I Want You to Know We're Still Here, is about her journey to uncover the story of her mother and father, what happened to them during the war and after when they immigrated to America with young Esther. I am on the line with Esther Safran Foer. She's the author of I Want You to Know We're Still Here, a post-Holocaust memoir. She was the CEO of Six and I, a center for art, ideas, and religion in Washington, D.C., where she grew up and where she lives with her husband, Bert. They're the parents of Franklin, Jonathan, and Joshua, and the grandparents of Six. Welcome, Esther. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So this book is a memoir, but it's also sort of like a mystery thriller, And it starts with your mother later in her life, almost casually telling you something you did not know about your family's past. Will you tell us about that moment and the journey it sparked? It was a casual conversation because in my family, because I come from a family of Holocaust survivors, we didn't talk a lot about the past. And, And I didn't ask a lot of questions respectfully to my mother. I didn't want to impart any pain on her. She didn't want to pain me with these stories, but there was so much that I wanted to know. So I'd use opportunities where she might not have expected questions. I would kind of sneak questions in and we were sitting at her kitchen table and I asked her something about my father. He was the biggest mystery in our life. My father committed suicide when I was eight, while my mother was the ultimate survivor of the Holocaust. He was not. And in my mind, the Holocaust ultimately killed him. So I'm sitting at the table and I asked him something about where my father was, how he survived. And she casually mentions, well, you know, uh, they, they were in a ghetto and he was on a work detail and his wife and daughter were killed. I was absolutely astounded. I didn't even know what to say. I had no idea that I wasn't my father's first child. 
that there was another family and another child. And here I was already a mother and nobody had ever told me this. And that began a search, really a lifelong search. I guess I was always searching. People like me who are second generation or descendants of Holocaust survivors and grew up with no family, no grandparents, no aunts, no uncles, were always searching for that missing family. And I always was. I was able to travel a lot. I would contact people. But this became a much more important search because I started to scour databases. I was looking for information about my father before the war, what his wife's name was, and most important to me, what was the name of this child, this child who would have been my half-sibling, and I couldn't find anything. There were six million Jews killed, probably more. We don't know the names. There were at least one and a half million Jewish children, and a lot of them don't have names. And my half-sibling didn't have a name. There was no place recorded where you could see that this person even lived, much less died. So it took me on a journey. It wasn't a kind of a straight line journey, and I wasn't traveling specifically to ask questions, but I was using every opportunity when I was traveling to reach out to people. I have a lot of family in Brazil. We were visiting Brazil, and my mother casually mentioned that I ought to contact Natan Kimmelblatt. He had one of the largest jewelry chains in Brazil, and she said he was your father's partner. Okay, so I'm in Brazil at a fancy hotel, and there's a Natan store right in the hotel. You know, I wasn't actually so eager to meet him, but I went in and I asked the salesperson if Natan was there. Of course, he wasn't there. He was at headquarters. And I said, well, can I just leave him a message? And she called the headquarters. Natan said, I'm sending a car for you. I know who you are. And it was through those kinds of things that I would learn little pieces of information. It turns out that Natan and his brother have photographic memories they could tell me pieces. Also on that trip to Brazil, I was at a um, literary festival in Paraty with my son, Jonathan. I was there as the babysitter for his six-month-old son, Sasha. And some guy shows up at the festival and gives Jonathan a note and says, my family is from Kolke. And Jonathan, having done his story, was really onto his next book, his next novel, his next cause. So he, he would give me the card and say, okay, mom, if you're interested, go follow up. And I did. I followed up with this guy who turned out to be like a second cousin that I didn't know about. And this happened literally all over the world. And then finally, in 2009, I was able to piece together so many clues. I decided that I needed to make the trip to Ukraine and see what I could pull together. And my oldest son, Frank, who's a journalist, came with me. In every shtetl we went to, we found new and unexpected connections. We found people who remembered something about our family, where they lived or what happened to them or where they were in the ghetto. Ultimately, I found the village my father lived in with his wife and daughter. And I found somebody who was able to tell me the thing that I thought I would never learn the name of my half-sister. And so when you refer to your son, Jonathan, that's Jonathan Safran Foer and his book, Everything is Illuminated, which is basically a fictionalized version of your journey, which he did as a young man. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that plays into your own story? One of the things that's so unique about this story is that this is a story that's been told in a number of different ways. It is still being told by the next generations of our family. Each of my sons, in their own way, was able to find information that opened doors for me. The big door opening came when Jonathan wrote Everything is Illuminated. He was a college senior wanting to spend a summer in Prague and was looking for a topic for his senior project. And I had suggested that he go to Ukraine and that try to find the family that hit my father, that hit his grandfather. The family that hit him for some part of the war made it possible for me to be here, made it possible for Jonathan to be here. Ultimately, he said that that sounds like a great project, and he undertook it. 
We have a picture of my father and three members of the family that hit him during the war. And it's been kind of a precious little picture and maybe two by three inches, kind of wrinkled with writing on the back. And we always imagined how cool it would be to find these people and to say thank you. But none of us were ready to do that. Traveling to Ukraine wasn't the easiest thing in the world at that point. But Jonathan undertook it. And he went and found absolutely nothing. So he came back and wrote this work of fiction, which ultimately even became a movie. And people started to call me and they could say, you know, this book he wrote, none of it is true. I come from this place. I can't believe he said this. They felt like he was desecrating the memory with the fiction that he created. But this is the unusual situation where fiction helped open reality. And I started to pick up those phone calls to meet with those people who were telling me the stories he told weren't true and telling me pieces of the story that were true that I could put together so that I could ultimately find the truth when I went to Ukraine. I mean, it's really, really amazing the way that your whole family sort of together is is uncovering this story in your own different ways. What I find really interesting, our oldest granddaughter, who used to like to sit with me as a little girl, you know, she was the oldest. She'd come down into my home office and she'd look at all the boxes in my office and see lots of pictures that weren't identified. And she said, Grandma, how will I know who these people are? And I realized that she was also interested in the story and that I had an obligation to her, to her cousins, to her sister, to tell them the story, to label those pictures, to write the story so that they would have it and they would always know where they came from. This book on the cover, it says a post-Holocaust memoir. And that that phrasing really stuck out with me. And I'd like to talk a little bit about your life because you were born in this murky period, which was after liberation, but also before people went the places they ended up going. So so post-war Europe, where basically it's kind of like a gray area in a lot of ways. Even your birth certificate doesn't actually say the correct information. Uh, it seems like it was sort of like a, a free-for-all Wild West. I don't know what the right metaphor is. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and, and into what world? That was really interesting and something that I learned a lot more about as I was researching this book. I was born in post-war Europe in Łódź, Poland. We snuck across the border into Germany like so many Jews, we were trying to figure out where to go. And this is a period that isn't talked about much. Everybody you know, knows what happens. The Jews were killed. The concentration camps were liberated. And then you kind of see everybody living happily ever after. And it wasn't at all like that. After the concentration camps were liberated, after people like my parents, who had been hiding in the East, came back and found nothing, they knew they had no place to go. They couldn't go back to their homes. There was nothing left. My mother went back to her home and she saw somebody walking in front of her in her sister's dress. There was no way that she could stay there. So they were trying to figure out what to do and they would make their way west from one large city to another. My parents ended up in Luj, where they were married in 45, where I was born in 46. And then we snuck across the border, actually just as the Iron Curtain was coming down. And we ended up in Germany in DP camps. There were something like 250,000, maybe 300,000 Jews in these camps who had nowhere to go. No country in the world wanted them. And they were trying to rebuild their lives. The uh, DP camps had the highest birth rate of any place in the world. They were building new lives. They were making up for the families that were destroyed. And as I remember that period, if I can remember it, or if it's stories that I've been told or pictures that I've looked at, I see a happy child that's loved by two adoring parents. I know that my father somehow got me the best toys and everybody wanted to play with them. But when I went back in the writing of this book and I did research on the DP camp that we were in, I found out it was a prisoner of war camp. It's where the Germans kept Russian prisoners of war. It had no heating. It was a mess. There were no facilities. And they threw out the Russian prisoners of war 
and enter the Jewish refugees who had to clean up these camps themselves, uh, who were dealing with soldiers, occupying forces that didn't understand them. And a lot of what was being told to the soldiers who were manning these camps, if you will, of the authorities, was told through German translators. It's well known that some of the Americans were very anti-Semitic. The General Patton, who I think was in charge of southern Germany, uh, described Jews as subhuman. So here were these refugees, no place to go, living in these camps, having children, trying to figure out life. It is such a period of time that is so not understood. And then, you know, finally, in our case, we came to the United States, but under false documents, which is really interesting right now in this time as refugees are all over the world trying to figure out where they can go to escape the hells that they're living in. My father falsified our documents because the 1948 DP Immigration Act, which is the act that allowed 200,000 displaced persons to enter the United States, was definitely anti-Semitic. President Truman knew it was anti-Semitic. He didn't want to sign it, but ultimately he did because it was a way to at least let some people in. So what was anti-Semitic is it said you had to have been in these camps by December of 1945. Well, there was no way the Jews who were in hiding at the end of the war or who were in Russia or Asia, like my mother, could have made it back to Germany by December of 45. So the fact that I was born in Poland in 46, if my parents had told the truth, would have been a clear indication that they weren't in Germany in December of 45. So hence, lots of falsifications and lots of attempts to get into lots of different countries. Palestine was closed. We wanted to go to Brazil where we had a large family, but Brazil too had anti-Semitic restrictions. And ultimately we came to the United States with false documentation in August of 49. So I'm a little bit obsessed with the DP camps, this like liminal space that they sort of occupy. My grandparents, my father's parents met in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp. They were in the theater troupe. Some of their best lifelong friends were, were people they met there. And that to me was a really, really shocking realization. Again, this, this information comes sort of similarly, you know, scattered, not necessarily openly discussed. But, you know, this idea that there was there was a vibrancy right after just the deepest, deepest, darkest tragedy. And there was also sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, right? Like they're right. Your dad was buying you toys. I don't know how. I mean, what was he doing to do that? There was sort of this way in which you would like leave the camp and like there was this whole black market. I mean, they were not living without risk, right? Oh, totally. Well, first of all, nobody wanted them. So where are you going to go? But the vibrancies, the other thing when I looked at these pictures more closely, when I looked at them as an adult instead of a kid, I saw my parents and other people in the camps beautifully dressed. Now, they were dressing in kind of aspirational clothes. They were looking forward to their new lives. I've been to the shtetls my family came from. They weren't wearing coats and ties there. But in all the pictures I have, my father has a lovely shirt on. He has a tie. He has a fedora. My mother is beautifully dressed with a piece of jewelry. This is in the midst of the DP camps where we're sleeping on army cuffs. And yes, there was vibrancy. There were theaters created. There were Jewish schools. There was a Jewish life built. And it was built sometimes with the help of Jewish American or Jewish British soldiers who were so sympathetic, understood the needs, and reached out and helped as much as they could, not always with the approval of their uh, commanders. What happens to your family when you get to America, when you settle in uh, Washington, D.C.? We had family here. We were lucky. My mother had two aunts here. So we came right to Washington. But American Jews, I'm not sure, knew what to do with us. We were people who came here with accents, with needs, who had just survived a war that maybe the American Jews were a little embarrassed about, embarrassed because so many Jews were killed and nothing happened, maybe embarrassed because they didn't do enough. So, yes, we came into this community, and in our case, my father, because of his black market business, we came here with resources. We were able to kind of move out within a couple of weeks into our own apartment, and my father got a job, and then they had several grocery stores. 
But life wasn't easy. It wasn't perfect here in America where the streets are supposedly paved with gold. We were refugees. We were outsiders. We were immigrants. And my parents' friends were mostly other immigrants because those were the people they felt comfortable with. The other thing we found that my mother had told me is that nobody really wanted to know what happened. They were afraid to ask. So, you know, you don't talk about it. What they were told is you just got to look ahead. You just got to build the future. Forget about it. Well, it's hard to forget about it. They lost everything and everyone. It wasn't an easy transition. And, and probably that transition is just now coming in my generation where we're really part of this culture. And so speaking of this culture, I sort of want to talk a little bit about the family you've created here. I'd like to talk a little bit about the way storytelling functions in your family. I mean, this book is beautifully written. What does it mean to have, first of all, you know, like we talked about earlier, your, your whole family searching for your story, but having all these people telling different stories in one family? Part of it is we were lucky enough. My mother lived until she was almost 99. The last couple of years, she lived in our house. We had the benefit of being a multi-generational family together. Her great-grandchildren would come and see her. One of her great-grandsons would always, when he walked in the house, that's the first place he'd go. He'd run up to her room, and he said it was like a beam of light. We had somebody that we could talk to, somebody alive that we could see who survived, who lived these stories. In, in our family, so people say we have three sons who are writers and all have published best-selling books. But I like to think that they're not really writers, that they're storytellers, that they're writing about things they care about. Jonathan, for example, while he's written two very successful novels, he has lately been writing about climate change, about eating animals and the impact that has on our global climate and on people themselves. And I'm so proud that they're not just writing stories, they're writing about things that are important to them. And I, I hope that's what came out of our family. There's a great line in the book, and it's not my line. <laughs> it's my mother's line talking to the kids after the war when she had said that somebody had offered her pork. It was the end of the war. She was hungry. She wouldn't eat it. And they're like, Grandma, why not? And she said, because if nothing matters, there's nothing to save. I hope that as a family, we understand what matters and we use whatever skills and tools we have to make our impact. So I have one final question for you. You have a line that you wrote, which is actually quite beautiful. Um, it's in the introduction. You say, it has been said that Jews are an ahistorical people concerned more with memory than history. Can you tell me a little bit about that and also how it relates to your search? Because you, you were searching for history, right? It wasn't my line. A lot of Jewish scholars have written books about that subject. But it was something I didn't understand until I started my own search. I'm not sure what I was searching for. I was searching to fill a hole in my life. But when I learned about this concept, it just crystallized everything for me. I mean, you think about the Passover Seder. We're not sitting there talking about Jews who left Egypt on this date and arrived on this date. And the numbers of people, whether how many thousands it was, we're supposed to live the story. We're supposed to, at the Seder, say, see ourselves coming out of Egypt. And it, it really struck me as I was writing and I was reading these people who were writing about Jewish memory, how important these memories are, not just the grand scale of history, not six million people who were killed or one and a half million children, but the story of my sister, the story of Anne Frank, the so many of these individual stories when you can see real people and put yourself in their place and understand that life is filled with so many difficult moments, but there were people that have survived. And I think my grandchildren certainly look at their great-grandmother and understand her resilience and strength and know that they can survive difficult moments like the one we're in right now because she and our ancestors, some of them did. 
that's a beautiful thought and a beautiful note to end on. Um, Esther Saffron Forth, thank you so much. The book is I Want You to Know We're Still Here. It's newly out. Everyone can get it wherever they are buying their books these days. Thank you for being on the show, Esther. Thank you, Stephanie. What a pleasure. Esther Saffron Fowler's book is I Want You to Know We're Still Here. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Andrew Evans is the Gentile on today's show. He's a London-based musician who grew up knowing that his grandfather survived the Holocaust, but also knowing that he couldn't ask his grandmother anything about him. That all changes after Brexit, when Andrew starts looking into whether he might be eligible for a passport from his grandfather's birth country. It turns out to be a very complicated story. I'll let Andrew explain it. I am here with Andrew Evans, host of the podcast Unbordered, which is about his quest to uncover his grandfather's story during the Holocaust and after. Andrew, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so sorry I, w- I was going to be there in person, but not to be. And judging by your accent, it would have been pretty far for you to get here. It would have been far. I'm in mean, North London. We would planned to make it a visit for our anniversary slash unorthodox podcast appearance, but we were coroned. A big week all around. This story sort of starts with Brexit. Will you tell us what happens after the EU referendum in 2016? So I was a very strong Remainer. I was proud of my European identity. And I think like a lot of people like me, when we woke up the next morning to find we'd voted to leave the European Union, I felt definitely part of my identity had been taken away. I was upset about this generally, but it also almost immediately I started thinking about my grandfather, who I never met, and he was kind of shrouded in mystery. It was much more of a rumor than a relative, motivated in part, at least, by a kind of cynical idea that I may be able to retain my EU passport through his heritage, because he, whatever I didn't know about him, he was certainly born in Europe. So I thought if I start investigating this ancestry, I might be able to find some kind of route to European citizenship. But what I found was arguably much, much more than that. And it also, in a sense, I sort of lost one identity, but then I started investigating the idea of a Jewish identity and whether, although I was not raised Jewish, I'm not Jewish, whether feeling Jewish is A, a thing, and if B, it's a thing that I'm allowed to feel. So it's sort of losing one identity and investigating another. So Adolf Lempert, this is your grandfather. His last name, we could sort of, we'll get into what it actually was, but his real name was in fact Adolf. It was. It it wasn't his parents' fault. They weren't to know. It was 1913. But yeah, it was an unfortunate name, which he kept for the rest of his life. He changed his surname, but hung on to, uh, to Adolf. He was affectionately known as Addy by friends and family, but still... You're not a journalist or a researcher, you're a musician. How do you go about, you know, digging into your family history and and what did what did you discover? The first thing I did was interview my mother. Just did a, a sit down and that m- may have been as far as it went. I didn't have any idea of doing it as a podcast necessarily and just got her to tell me everything she thought she knew about him because later in life he essentially disappeared. And while my nan, my mother's mother was still alive, we weren't really allowed to talk about him. So I just got her to tell me everything she could tell me, and I recorded this. And then I started trying to piece together the gaps or trying to correct some of the things that that didn't hold up. And as I did that, the people I was talking to to try and find out this information, because I went through ancestry and sort of my heritage roots, but also I was trying to talk to people to get as much information as I could. And really the strength of those contributors made me feel like there was something podcastable about it. 
particularly when I was able to get in touch with Philippe Sands. I don't know if you're familiar with his book, East West Street. His grandfather was also born in Lemberg, Lviv, where my grandfather was born. As soon as I got the, the strength of those contributors, I thought there's something I could do a podcast about this. So what are some of the things that you had always thought about your grandfather that quickly turned out to, uh, with a little digging, turned out to not be true? There was nothing explicitly untrue. He'd, he'd always self-described as Austrian-Dutch, which when I came to investigate applying for this EU passport, I was like, well, Austria or, or the Netherlands, I didn't know which. He'd also said he, he was born in a place called Lemberg, which is a place that's now called Lviv, and it's actually in west of Ukraine. But when I found his military records, because one of the things we definitely knew about him is he made it to England somehow and served with the RAF. And on his military records, which I was able to get, it says his birthplace was The Hague in the Netherlands. So this already, there was sort of, and he by this time he'd changed his name to Lempert from his birth name. So at that point, I thought, okay, so he wasn't born in Lemberg. He was born in the Netherlands. Then digging a little deeper, no, that's just what he told the RAF because he was then able to join what was a Dutch squadron that had been incorporated into the RAF during the Second World War. He was obviously changing as needed. Well, it's interesting. You know, the show, which I've listened to, is really, really great. It's called Unbordered. And it's really about sort of this idea of like sort of the stateless Jew in a lot of ways because of even just you're talking about what these countries are now, what they were then, you know, the borders are very, very diffuse and they certainly were then. And with the context of Brexit, it all sort of gets this really, really modern take. So I guess I'm curious, you know, what does this idea of them being stateless mean to you as you sort of look for concise history and rootedness for your own life? It's interesting because when he was born in Lemberg, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And literally a year after that, I think, it no longer was part of And that the city is from is almost a metaphor for him because it changed hands so many times it became lots of different things. After the First World War, there was the Treaty of Versailles, but alongside this, there was a second treaty which awarded Polish citizenship to anyone that was born in Galicia, which is the region that Lviv forms a part of. They were suddenly just awarded Polish citizenship. They didn't have to apply. They just became Polish. But when Poland then renounced on this treaty, suddenly he was a stateless Jew in an occupied country. I think he was a man who was either adaptable by nature or by necessity. And I think his statelessness is what made that possible in a way. He became what he needed to be to survive. And sometimes that was a Dutch RAF pilot and sometimes that was something else. I know that he somehow made it to Portugal, which is how he was then able to get to London. And he was somehow able to cross all of these borders. And when he made it to London and after the Second World War, he then set to work on creating a very English life for him and his daughters. So he made sure they went to good English schools. They were christened C of E. He'd married a non-Jewish woman. And anything that felt like inclusion, I think. He also joined the Freemasons as well. So I think he just wanted to be included as a reaction to this idea of not being from anywhere anymore. But he also seemed to really recreate himself as a good Englishman, right? He sort of erased, in a sense, that part of his identity because it, it no longer really suited him. Is that how you understood it? I don't know if it's so much that it no longer suited him. I think he, by that time, had just adapted by nature. And I think it was not necessarily a rejection of his Jewish heritage or his Jewishness because he never claimed to be anything other than Jewish. He never, so far as I know, was never baptized or never converted in any official capacity. But I imagine there was some degree of feeling that was protecting his daughters. If he created this really, really normal middle-class English life, then they wouldn't go through what he'd gone through. And it's funny, you know, I don't want to give too much away of the several mysteries, right? There's the wartime mystery, piecing together that story, and then what happens to him after. But, you know, it seems like he gets through the war in a lot of ways on, on charm, mm -hmm. on sort of what you say, being whatever he needs to be in that moment. But then that charm sort of helps derail to some degree his domestic life, right? With your mother and her and her mother. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. And there's something I couldn't, I wasn't quite a good enough writer to put this idea into the podcast itself, but he left two families. He was the only survivor with a possible omission. He was the only survivor from his family. He was able to get away. Then coming to England, building this new life for himself, he then left that family as well. And obviously in completely different circumstances, 
But there is something to do with the idea that he was able to do that on both occasions. I think they may be two sides of the same coin, maybe. Without, you know, spoiling too much, when he leaves, just where does he go? The second time. He has an almost cliched midlife crisis and goes to Paris with, it's not too much of a giveaway to say he goes to Paris with a much younger woman, which came as a total shock and was devastating to my my mum's mum. And which is why he was never to be spoken about while she was still alive, at least. And again, see, because I never met him, running off to Paris with someone sounds like this kind of romantic, not heroic, but, you know, the protagonist of a story would do that kind of thing and you would think it was quite impressive. Obviously, that's because I never had to deal with him as the person and never have to confront the real devastation that he caused my nan because she was the kindest, sweetest person you could have met. If there was anyone that didn't deserve that, it was her. With grandparents, it's easy to sort of lionize them, right? You've, if you know them, they're it's late in their lives. They've accomplished so much. They're these loving characters in your lives. If they're gone, you know, they're heroic, right? Like you learn what they've been through. You learn that. So what was it like for you to sort of grapple with both the superhuman of this man to, to get through all these situations, to cross who knows how many borders, and then to also realize the deep humanity of someone who then left your mother and her, her sister and, and, and his wife? Yeah, it, it's trying to consolidate the two, isn't it? There's no question that he must have acted incredibly bravely and resourcefully to have survived the Holocaust one way or another. And it's tempting to imagine him just sort of charming his way into the Air Force. But That was a dangerous gig, and he was a navigator, which was a skilled profession. So it's not as though he literally blacked his way in. But then, yeah, confronting the idea that he was then able to do these less heroic things, and then also confronting the idea of why I'm still drawn to him, why I still think, why I'm still tempted to lionize him. I don't know if I've quite reached the end of why that is, but I think it's something to do with he is this link to this identity that I feel. We're talking about this idea of Jewish-ishness, and there is a part of me that feels deeply connected to that, and I think he's my he's my link to that. There's a line I cut again because I didn't think it was well enough written to justify its inclusion in the actual podcast, but I'd always felt Jewish, at least some kind of secular North London Jewish-ishness, and being the grandson of a Holocaust surviving Nazi fighting Jew makes it feel a little less appropriated, and that was kind of my take. On that. So I assume you were raised with Jewishness in the background, maybe? What was what was sort of No, only through recollections of my mother, and she was christened, so she wasn't raised Jewish either. She just knew that her father was Jewish. No, I was raised C of E, which is as close to being raised in no religion at all, really. It's a kind of C of E is Church of England. It is Church of England, yes, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I went to what was nominally a Church of England school. I would have gone to Sunday school because I was in the Cub Scouts, but there was no particular driving force in terms of faith in our family anyway. But I felt increasingly drawn to to his side of things. So what else have you been learning as he's been sort of your portal into this world of Jewishness and specifically, you know, being the third generation, right? The grandchild of someone who in whatever way survived the Holocaust. I mean, how has that developed over time? The Holocaust is something that's almost literally incomprehensible and is at this time particular, it's something that's absolutely falling from living memory, as is the the whole Second World War, I think. It's feeling a connection to that. I lost family in that Holocaust, and it's a feeling that there's a direct line to that. And someone who was able to survive that was able to come to this country and build a life for the family that became me. So it's funny because you're grateful to him for that, but then he, I mean, it's so complicated because he's not this perfect person. He is by no means a perfect person, and I managed to find other people who knew him personally, knew him as an adult. My mother only knew him as a father, more or less, and everybody comments on how charming and charismatic and what a people person he was. I do wonder just how charming he had to be to be able to to do some of these things. But again, I I wouldn't want to downplay the horrors he must have gone through. He never spoke about his past, which is obviously quite typical of survivors. And I don't know how deeply that affected him and how that influenced his decisions later in life. And so I want to go back to sort of the original reason, the sort of selfish reason for starting this introspective journey to get an EU passport. I mean, are you able to do that still? That seems incredibly unlikely. He unfortunately gave so many different accounts of where he was born throughout the course of his life, even if the brief period where he was Polish counted for something, which I don't think it does. The thing is, when he came to England, he became a British citizen. And consequently, that tends to, if you actually become a citizen of another country, particularly 
in some of the EU countries, that becomes something that you forfeit the right to sort of pass that on to your children. Well, it's funny. So this has just basically made you more British as a result. I don't know. I feel more European than ever. What Brexit did in this country, and I think maybe similar to Trump's election in America, we seem to be in a kind of not a one-upmanship or one-downmanship at the moment in terms of... The world's worst pissing contest. Yeah, exactly. The kind of views that suddenly people obviously held these views, sort of what you'd politely call nationalist, but more accurately probably describe as racist views. And suddenly they felt allowed to say them out loud again. Brexit, the kind of go back to where you came from language, suddenly people felt okay to say that sort of thing again. And in opposition to that, I'm very lucky I live in London. London was overwhelmingly in favor of remaining in the European Union. It was the demographics across the country were very rarely evenly split in the way the final result was. So actually, in opposition to that kind of things, I feel less and less proud to be English, certainly, and more and more proud to be a Londoner, more proud to be part of Europe, even if we're not going to be part of the European Union and proud to be part of this sort of heritage, this Jewish heritage as well. Well, Andrew, we welcome you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> we'll make it official. Um, this is okay. sort of the, the rabbinic dispensation you need. Okay. Um, it's such a treat following along with your journey. Our listeners can listen to Unbordered at unborderedpodcast.com or wherever you are listening to this very podcast. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You can find Andrew's podcast, Unbordered, on all podcast platforms or at unborderedpodcast.com. Andrew's family story continues to unfold, and it has a surprising American element. And by the way, we liked Andrew so much, we hired him. He's helping us out with some fun video stuff for Unorthodox. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our final guest today is Daphne Geismar, whose new book, Invisible Years, tells the story of her extended family in Nazi-occupied Netherlands, but with a twist. Daphne is a book designer by trade, and what she created is as much a work of art as it is a Holocaust narrative. My guest today is Daphne Geismar. She creates those beautiful books about art and history that you see in museum shops at places like the Met and MoMA in New York. And in May, she published a different kind of book. Still beautiful and artfully designed, Invisible Years tells the story of Daphne's extended Jewish family in Nazi-occupied Netherlands. Welcome, Daphne. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a treat to talk to you because I have truly never seen a book like yours. Like, it seems like you've taken what you've learned about creating books about art that are themselves works of art and used that format to tell your family's story. So tell us a little bit about the book and how you decided to tell your family's story this way and why. The best books are the books that grow out of the content. 
And with this book, I first had to spend about 10 years figuring out what the content was. My mother in 2006 opened a drawer that I had lived with my whole life and I didn't know what was in it. And it was packed with letters, documents, diaries from two generations of my family telling about their experiences in the Holocaust. I realized that I had this archive of an entire extended family that told one story, but each were pieces of a story and many didn't even know what the others had experienced. I had this narrative in multiple voices. I also had hundreds of beautiful photographs and artifacts, the diaries and letters of themselves, false identity cards, a teddy bear. And I really wanted the reader to be able to experience them as I did. So I hired an art photographer to photograph them with a little bit of a shadow, a real shadow, not a Photoshop shadow, so that as much as possible, it would feel like that object was there in front of you. So I ended up with this very layered book of a narrative in nine voices, photographs and artifacts, history, timelines, and then it was about how to make that really accessible and simple, but to have it all there. So I want to talk about this Holocaust drawer. Did you always knew it was there, never wanted to look in it, never knew what it was? Was this part of your family's history that you had been able to access before, or did it really start when you began this journey? I never knew it was there. My parents, like so many Holocaust survivors, didn't talk about their experiences until maybe 50 years later. So I was already an adult out of the house, I knew the outlines of their stories from them mostly talking to schools and community centers, but not really directly to us. And in 2006, the catalyst for this book was an invitation from the Bright Plain Church in Rotterdam to come to their 75th anniversary. And that's the church where my maternal grandparents had been hidden for two years. I didn't know anything about their story or the church. I and 11 other families members went. And there we met the granddaughters of the minister who hid our grandparents. And they started asking my mother and my aunt to tell them more. And they started telling them more. We said we should collect both of our family stories. And when I came back to the United States, and asked my mother what else she had that she could tell me about our family's experiences, she took me to this desk and opened the drawer. It's a huge drawer, and it was packed with this material, and that was the first I had ever known about it. In the book, you tell the story of both sides of your family. Can you give us a little bit the sort of the broad strokes of, of what the stories that you weave together are, uh, where everyone was, and what happened to them? One of the first things I discovered in this drawer, which I think of as a miracle, is a 49-page memoir that was written by my paternal grandfather. He's the only one of the nine narrators who didn't survive. He was murdered in Auschwitz. My father almost never spoke about him. And at this point, the drawer was opened in 2006, and my father died in 2003. So um, he was no longer alive. In the drawer was this memoir by my grandfather, and it was in German. And fortunately, my husband is fluent in German. So he started reading it and he said, this is a memoir written in hiding by your grandfather just months before he was arrested and taken to Westerbork and then Auschwitz. So the book is three families, the Jesuta family, which is my mother's side, the Geismar family, which is my father's side, and the Cohen family, which is an aunt and uncle. There's another uncle whose story is sort of an afterword because his situation took place in Poland and it acts as a counterpoint to everyone else in the Netherlands. So there's these three nuclear families and we hear about their lives before the war, which are assimilated and very non-eventful. And then there's the German occupation and everything changes. And slowly, slowly it's like a world gone mad, but it's very slowly and insidiously as the various decrees are put upon them. You know, initially they can't have bikes or roller skates and then they can't play with their non-Jewish friends. And then they can't go to school and their parents lose their jobs, etc. And eventually those decrees lead to restriction from all aspect of public life and deportation. And so the two generations at the time, in the 1940s, are parents and adolescents. The parents decide that they're going to make plans to go into hiding. 
And we hear from each of them in hiding. And my uncle's story is he was with his whole family eventually and hidden by a policeman. And it reads like an adventure story. And my father is originally hidden with his father, who is afraid that it's not safe enough. He sends my father to the north of the Netherlands, where my father learns the dialect and can be hiding in plain sight. And my grandfather is arrested. And I always wonder why, if he thought this hiding place wasn't safe, why he didn't leave too. And then the Dezutas have three daughters, one of which is my mother's. All three girls are hidden separately, have very different experiences. Many of them change hiding places three, four, five, six times. And my grandparents, their parents are in a church. And my grandfather develops quite a close relationship with the reverend. And they meet in the evenings to share their views on Judaism and Christianity. And then after the sections on hiding, there's liberation and their voices come back together. And we start to understand what that means to come out of hiding and move on. Well, something that's so interesting about the visual way the story is told, and just, you know, to be clear, this is sort of like coffee table size, hardcover book with beautiful, thick pages. And there's one double spread, which is a map with little dots that show where everyone was hiding across the country. And it's so powerful to see it laid out in this way after we've heard these stories of all these individual people to sort of put them in a larger context and all of these dots that ultimately connect with you. I mean, so when you are telling the story this way, how how are you able to sort of use these additional elements to to sort of contextualize what's going on? So when you read the chapters on hiding, in that first year, they're changing addresses constantly. My grandparents had eight hiding addresses before they met the minister and hid in the church. And at that time, either there were raids in the neighborhood or the hiders were connected to the resistance and they were afraid they would be found out or there was a family, internal family problem, so they could no longer keep an additional child. So they were moving around quite a bit, and the stress is not a strong enough word, but the the angst and anxiety of not having a hiding place and knowing that if you don't have a hiding place, you're going to be picked up is explained in the narrative's own voices as they talk to you in their chapters. And But then you look at the map and you see that for eight people, there were over 30 hiding places. And you can look at them as individuals. So you can look at Chaim and Fifi, my grandparents, and you can follow their numbers on the map going back and forth from west to east to west of the Netherlands as they're desperately trying to find a hiding place. So you realize the anxiety they went through. You also realize each hiding place has a key to the name of the person they were hiding with and the address and the dates. And you realize that these 30 people helped, or 30 families, so many more than 30 people helped just my family. And that visual is symbolic of that. And In fact, 57% of the Jews in the Netherlands who went into hiding survived, and only 5% returned from concentration camps. So not everyone could find a hiding place or someone to hide them, but those who did were extremely fortunate. The thing that I was curious about reading this book and knowing I was going to talk to you was whether approaching it the way you sort of approach all of your books, right? You have the story, you have the visual elements. Did that give you a layer of sort of separation from what is, you know, these are sad and beautiful, but really, really emotional stories. I mean, did did approaching it as sort of the bookmaker almost give you a helpful angle in, or was it still really personal? Really, the one time that was most emotionally difficult was the moment of understanding what my family went through. I really didn't though I knew the sort of the facts and the outlines and the history of the Holocaust and read and a lot and seen a lot, it wasn't until I thought, what can I do with these documents? And I did a little test of printing out the transcriptions and cutting them up and sequencing them and weaving them together. So there was maybe, you know, an hour to read of a sample. And I sat down to read that sample and the horror of, the collective stories of just one family hit me and I put my head on the table to weep. And that was really the one extremely emotional moment that I experienced while making this book. 
Well, I will say that my favorite page is the spread on 70 to 71, which is like a photo of a class of young children. And the quote above it, which I think is from your mother, says, we were mm-hmm. about to be murdered by the Nazis and our parents were still worried about our education. <laughs> so there are these like kind of beautiful and human moments in there as well. It sounds like your mother and her sisters never really talked about their experiences during the war. I think there's a quote that said, it was over and it was time to start a new life. So your aunt was saying, why bother each other about it? So was that something that changed at certain points? I mean, who who was sort of alive for this process? And how did it affect the rest of your family putting this together? My mother and her sisters, they all very much put it behind them. And I think it was the only way for them to move forward with their life. They did not share their stories or experiences in hiding with one another. And there was a moment later or a time later in my parents' life where they joined a group of child survivors of the Holocaust. And my mother was on the phone with her sister, Judith, and she said, you know, I went to one of these meetings today and I learned that not all of those who helped and hid Jews were good people and that some actually abused the Jews that they were rescuing, in quotation marks. And um, at that moment, my aunt, something opened up in her, and she said, that happened to me. And that was the first time she ever shared the story of what happened to her in hiding. She was abused, and she never shared that story with anyone else. As this book seemed to be coming a reality and that it would be published, she shared the story with me and then with her daughters, which she had not planned to do until after her death. So very little was shared among the family. My mother was alive and cognizant when I started working on the book and doing, I was really in the research phase and she was able to be very helpful and I was able to ask her questions and my cousin was able to interview her. She then developed dementia and so we weren't able to ask her questions anymore. And my other aunts and uncles also were alive during the research phase. And sadly, by the time the book was created, the only living narrator was my aunt Judith. She and I became very close, despite the fact that she lives in Israel and across an ocean. And I also became very close to two of her daughters, my cousins, who did a lot of research on the book as well, especially looking for things in Israel. The book is called Invisible Years, and that's obviously a reference to the years that so many members of your family were in hiding. I mean, this idea of like invisible versus visible and the visual aspect that you bring to this book, it seems like this really, really beautiful tribute to your family. And it's it's nice that so many of your generation could be part of that. So I'm wondering how that sort of changed your dynamic. I imagine this brings you all a lot closer together as a family. Initially, the book was just going to be a book for our family. In hindsight, I can see that I needed to figure out a lot. And by making this book, I was on my path to doing that. Somewhere along the line, I thought this story is bigger than just for our family. But that moment of being able to share the book with family members, it was bittersweet because eight of the nine narrators weren't here anymore. And I wish they could have read it. But Judith, who's still alive, is making up for that. (laughs) And uh, when she first read the book, she called me from Israel and said, you know, I just need to call you right now because I'm reading. And I feel like my sisters are sitting on the couch talking to me as I read the book. And then a few weeks later, she called again and she said, so I'm reading the book for the second time much more slowly and carefully. And I realized that this is the first time I understand what happened. She said, I had no idea about the whole family story and how it was so interconnected. And much of what happened to my sisters and parents and in-laws, I didn't know about. And she said, but more importantly, you know, I she was an adolescent at the time and she moved on, as we said, and didn't reflect back on that time at all. And she said, I finally understand the social and political situation that could have allowed this to happen. So while the others aren't here to experience the book, Judith's comments have been um, the greatest gift. 
So I think we often love this idea of Jews as people of the book. We're not always people of like the beautiful book. And I wonder if you see this, this, you know, this is really, this is an, an artifact that you've made and it's beautiful. And I wonder if you see it as anything larger, like a contribution to the canon of Jewish artworks. I mean, how do you sort of feel about that more broadly? I think beauty and being able to access something complicated at multiple levels, quality, materials, all help the content of a book become alive and compelling. And so I was aware that so many Holocaust memoirs are not beautiful. And while the stories and the messages are so important, there's a lot of attention to detail, both in the text and the presentation and design that's that's missing that I think would really support them. So that's why I felt like maybe... I had been a book designer, so I could make this book in this way. Daphne Geismar, we are very happy that you made this book. The book, again, is Invisible Years. Daphne, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. Daphne Geismar's book is Invisible Years, and you can find that and all her work at DaphneGeismar.com. That's D-A-P-H-N-E-G-E-I-S-M-A-R.com. That's our show for today. Wishing all of you a meaningful Tish above, and for those who are fasting, an easy fast. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. The show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Kurt Hoffman, filling in for Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. We come to you from the diaspora of Tablet Studios, where we await our return once again to the podcast promised land. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.